Welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from, and the businesses, and more importantly, the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. I always wanted this podcast to be pretty eclectic in its range of guests, all hung under this idea of hospitality in its very broader sense, where food and drink is the common denominator. And this week's guest, Sue Quinn, is a food writer and cookbook author. And I really wanted to chat to Sue about the importance of the written word in hospitality, and I guess our lives in general. The reviewers, the critics and the influencers are all having an impact on our venues and our daily lives. Now from the ghee butter in Olivia Coleman's Oscar-winning goodie bag and the rise of ultra-processed vegan food to the eerie beauty of cacao pods that look like alien lanterns, This gives you a flavour of the range of topics that Sue explores in her writing life. But her early career was far removed from food and drink. Sue was a political journalist in Australia before moving to the UK as London correspondent. And after a stint at The Guardian as a home news reporter, she went freelance and began editing and then writing cookbooks. Sue is now an award-winning food writer, journalist and cookbook author. Her articles and recipes regularly appear in The Telegraph, The Sunday Times and The Guardian, and her books range from Easy Vegan to Coco, her most recent encyclopedic work on chocolate. In the interest of research, she even travelled to Mexico where she sampled gorgeous artisanal hot chocolate, something she was well qualified to do because Sue has accreditations in both chocolate and cheese tasting. And as you'll hear, variety really is the spice of this writer's life, and Sue's ability to turn her pen to a range of projects is an advantage in a sector which has seen a huge amount of change in the last few years. Okay, I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Sue Quinn, food writer, cookbook author. Thank you so much for sparing the time to be in the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. Good. Brilliant. Traditionally, I always ask people, where on planet Earth are we? It seems to be how I start it. And it feels a little bit odd doing that this time because I know this very well. But Sue, can you just describe for people listening, where are we in the world, please? We are in... in sunny, funny um, Southbourne, or born, well, we're actually in Boscombe Beach, aren't we? We in are, urban, technically, yeah. Urban Reef, um, your wonderful restaurant yeah, and my, bar. Yeah, my very own restaurant, yep. which, uh, yeah, feels a little egotistical. But thank you for coming to us instead thank of making me come to you. It's a pleasure. I've spent many, many happy hours having coffee here looking at the sea, oh, so it's gorgeous. Bless you, thank you. We can only just see the sea today because uh, it's one of those days where it's just, everything is just wet. It's not like it's even raining. It's just, as soon as you walk out the door, it's soggy, but we are technically overlooking the ocean. And it's we? gorgeous, even even though it's grey. Even so, yes, perfect. Um, so I'm, I'm you know, genuinely fascinated, although our paths have crossed, we've never sat down and had a proper conversation and I'm aware of some books that you've done and I've read some of the articles that you've done. So, you, you know, you do lots of stuff. We were just chatting about some TV stuff that mm-hmm. you've done. Yeah. Uh, and actually in this podcast so far, I've mainly interviewed people that are, um, I, I suppose, on the cold face of hospitality a little bit, either from the growers or from the sort of the chefs and the final producers. But you're much more around... Yeah, writing and talking around our industry, which is going to be fascinating. 
Yeah. Um, before we go, or before we start properly, I suppose there's there's been this, uh, I don't know if it's kind of a, a revolution or a devolution, but this change in the last few years. You know, you're a trained journalist. Journalism, what's what you've done for a long time. Mm. And we now get bombarded by, I suppose... I, 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 digital, and I'm not even going to say digital journalism, because all too often it's kind of you know it's influencers, influencers, and it's Instagram and all that mm. kind of stuff. What's your view on the on the changes we've seen? I suppose over the last five to ten years. Yeah, I mean it has been really interesting. The whole British food revolution, where Brit- the British, the Renaissance in British food has um, has seen the emergence of people. Well, first of all, bloggers, I guess, people who could go into a restaurant just with their phone camera and then go home and write up a review on the internet or on their website or what have you. And that, I think that initially put paid critics um, their noses out of joint because they didn't quite know where every, every, everyone would, would fit in the, mm. in the food writing scene. Um, but even though that's raised some problems, I guess, because you've got the whole question of, um, you know, bloggers and Instagrammers now being paid for their, their photos and their, and their little kind of entries on Instagram or touting themselves around the town to get freebies. Yeah, I was going to say, the frustration of restaurateurs is probably... You may well have had those approaches, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, But I think in a more positive way, it's really opened up opportunities for people who want to write about food because everyone's more interested in food. Everyone wants to know about food ways, which is what I think of not just the food that's sitting in front of you, you know, how to make it, the recipe, but where that's come from, who's grown it, um, what's the history behind that dish. So our interest in food has ex- has expanded into all those areas, which are the ones which I, I just find really, really interesting. The whole context of how a plate has come to sit in front of you and how that... Um, actually informs the taste of it as well. So that's all really interesting. So there's there's been positives and negatives, but for me, positives, because I've ridden part of that food revolution. It's yeah. opened up opportunities for me to turn... Um, I was a political journalist in Australia. Oh, really? And then I worked for The Guardian here, and, and it was because of the food revolution, I think, that opened up all those media opportunities. So I'm very grateful for it, despite okay. despite the problems. Yeah, that's good, because I think, you know, the perception externally is that it must become a challenge. But then I, I've spoken to photographers before, not on the podcast, but separately, about, you know, the fact everybody now can take a decent photo on their iPhone. But actually, it is just making the market bigger and the demand for quality bigger, I suppose. So actually, you know, good photographers are still very much in demand. Yeah. Because we all, we're all so used to photography now that the really exceptional stuff stands out. But even more than anything, we just we just live in an image orientated world. So mm. I, I guess you're right that the uh, the interest in food is just continuing to get bigger and bigger. So the market is bigger. So I suppose there's there's space for everyone. Absolutely, and people aren't stupid. You know, I think people are now they're very discerning about food. They can see uh, the difference between a paid post, something that's just fawning, and there's clearly a, a free meal behind it and someone yeah. who's actually spent some time investigating and talking to people and, and presents a whole complete picture rather than just yeah. an advertisement. Do you think one sector has more of an influence and is almost a kind of, you know, inferred by using the word influence, but you've, you know, you've got the traditional journalists and by here I'm not so much talking about the food critics, I want to come on to that a little bit in a minute, mm. but is there, you know, it feels that from a sheer volume perspective uh, that these, you know, influencers, and I'm using inverted comments there, uh, almost have a, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but they almost have, you know, too much weight behind them and too much influence without that training behind them and without maybe the, the knowledge. I don't know, any thoughts on that? Oh, I mean... I- it's it would be easy to say yes to that because I've put a lot of hard you know effort and sweat blood sweat and tears and being pre- 
trained and, you know, I, I, I think I'm well informed about the things that I write about mm. and I think I have um, some ethics in the way I approach my job and so it's frustrating to look at Instagrammers and influencers who might not have those boxes ticked. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's room for us all, okay. you know, I do and, you know, it's customer beware to a certain extent. If you're going to go to a restaurant and spend good money um, based on an Instagram post, it's not great, but that's how we learn, isn't it? Yeah. You know. So I think the frustration as a restaurateur is just the speed of change. Is that mm. you? You know, somebody uh, cottons on to a, to a new. Whereas you used to be able to open a good restaurant and do good food and good service, and uh, you could stay in vogue for many years, or mm. not even in vogue. You were just, you know, you were just known mm. as a good place to go. Mm. And now it's um, it's become so much interest in opening new venues, uh, and the, the tides can shift so quickly. You know, yeah. one day you're super busy, and then the next day a, a few influencers go out, put a load of photos mm. of a new place, and all of a sudden all of your customers mm. have disappeared. I agree with you the cult of the new kind yeah. of the instagram and the whole digital photography thing has really perpetuated this everything needs to be new everything no one values kind of your local that you go to again and again and again um uh and and it's a and it's a real problem yeah. you know but you see restaurants in london now you know there's one um the asia the ivy asia has just opened in london which is pretty much they admit designed for Instagram. It's really? basically got, it's photogenic. Everywhere you look, it's photogenic. They've spent a gazillion quid on the floor so that Instagrammers can take a picture of the floor. Wow. Um, any any restaurant that opens in London will have to have a dish that's that, that almost goes viral or they strive to make it go viral on Instagram. So it has yeah. to be photogenic or slightly unusual. Um, I, I don't know. I, I find it hard to get... Because I'm not a restaurateur. Yeah, um, so maybe I've not got as much invested in it. But I do think that there's room for everybody. But it, yeah. but that that's not the healthy side of what's going on. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And, and, and we're guilty of it as well. And we, you know, we, we definitely... It is good in the fact that we do employ more professional photographers now because you really want the, the food to be wow. Um, mm. talk, touching on ethics, mm. um, food critics certainly seem to have uh, a big opportunity to influence. I interviewed uh, Michael Bremner and he, in his early days in 64 Degrees, you know, he, he had some, uh, some very positive reviews. But on the flip side, um, I think Honest Burgers, I was interviewing a few weeks ago and they had one and it was, it was something like the end of the A to Z of catastrophe or something mm. like that. Luckily, they came through it um, mm. you don't do food critics and is there a reason why um I've never been offered the chance to do it to be honest and I think to do it well I think I would struggle to do it well mm. I mean the people I admire <clears throat> part of the reason I got into food writing was A.A. A. Gill right and I don't know whether you're kind of the the late A.A. A. Gill yeah, who, who yeah. wrote um restaurant reviews for the Sunday Times for years and years and years and he was able to combine his just breathtaking writing skills with um, with food reviews but backed up by enormous knowledge mm. of food um, and that's the difference between the kind of the good ones and the bad ones if if you're a restaurateur who who cops a criticism from one of the respected food writers it will be for a reason yeah. and I've seen you know some chefs don't like it but but the but the sensible ones will just take it on We'll just take it on board. Yeah. Um, uh, if you're a young restaurant, though, they really have the impact to, uh, you know, destroy you when you've invested, you know, your mortgage and your, you know, your house is on the line and you've taken all of that risk. And I, I feel for them sometimes. And you think, you know, I don't know how some of those reviewers, I appreciate they may be telling the truth. But the yeah. thing is, in hospitality, you can have a bad night. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean yeah. you should be written well, off completely. It, it, but to be honest, the really good reviewers will not will not review on the basis of one visit. You know, Faye Mashler or Marina or Lachlan or Grace Dent, they'll go a number of times. Most of them will never review you within your first three months. And they understand that, 
you know, humans are behind these operations. But I take what you're saying. If not everybody's um, approaching things with those with those ethics, and sometimes I think it's much easier to to stick the knife in yeah. than to write a positive review. People think it's more entertaining and. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when I go to a restaurant, I tend to be more forgiving. People often ask if I'm sort of highly critical when I go to restaurants. And actually, because I recognise the complexity probably of what's going on behind the scenes and, you know, and, and wonder, has somebody called in sick or has a supplier let them down or maybe they've got a particularly difficult table, uh, I'm always a little bit defensive of the restaurant with, with friends who can be a little bit obnoxious sometimes yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in their kind of feedback to restaurants. And I'm like, yeah, give them a chance. It's yeah. like theatre. It's every day they've got to perform again, breakfast, lunch and dinner three times a day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you need to give people a, a, a break. I do. I do get that, but my, you know, my family hates going out to restaurants with me because I am, I am a bit critical, and I, I, I take on board what you say, and I wouldn't judge um, a restaurant in its early, in its, in its infancy. No. Um, but on the other hand, you're paying good money. Yes. And yeah, there's absolutely. no reason why you should. No. Overlook oh, God, no. flaws in the service or bad no. food, or you know, just because they're trying hard. Absolutely, know? no, hundred percent, yeah. And you should, have, but but I guess the key thing is that it's nice if people, you know, tell the restaurant and give them the opportunity to make amends. I agree. The the, the problem we seem to have in the modern culture, and the Americans are really good at complaining to your face, aren't they? But we seem to have. Uh, in our exceptionally polite British way, lo- grabbed the opportunity of things like TripAdvisor and gone, oh, good, now I can say everything that I think anonymously uh, behind the scenes. And you get this, uh, yeah, this sort of very rude feedback that people wouldn't do face-to-face. Yeah, I, agree, I agree with you. And I'm, I'm more outspoken than my family is. My family, my husband and children are English and I'm clearly not. Um, <laughs> There's a hint of an accent, huh? <laughs> um, But sometimes you don't want the occasion to be brought down by a complaint either. So it's, it is a complex business, but I think, yes, anyone who's rude to servers you know, really doesn't deserve any sympathy at all because clearly it's not the server's fault that the food or whatever has gone wrong in their experience. Um, so rudeness to servers or even to, to the manager is not on as no, far as I'm concerned. I agree. Well, look, thank you for, you know, for, for, yeah, for not being a super harsh uh, food <laughs> critic and some of them obviously I love dearly and recognise the complexity. Um, your ten- involvement with kitchens quite often tends to be more about getting to know the chefs and maybe giving them a call and asking them about certain ingredients because you're, you tend to be working on sort of you know longer uh, pieces or books that you might be researching. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, so I don't do news reporting anymore. I do a lot of reporting about food trends <clears throat> or particular dishes that are suddenly appearing on restaurant menus and we want to have a little bit of an explore into kind of why and what's so good about them and how readers might be able to make them at home so I love talking to chefs they're they're um because it's it's something and I look at what they do and I it it baffles me how they could do it you know I've done it occasionally for charity um events and what have you and just to that full-on service is is tough it's 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 stressful and they work so so hard Um, but I also love the way their creativity works with food like the 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 magic of the alchemy of putting together these disparate ingredients to make this completely different amazing thing to eat, um, um, huge respect, especially the ones that I interview who who tend to be doing things that are a little bit different. Yeah, um, and I and I love that. Love yeah. the whole thought process. Yeah, they're a phenomenal uh, breed of individuals. Not mm. not just have the creativity creativity to kind of you know come up with original dishes, but the ability to to often deliver that en masse. You know, it's hard enough sometimes cooking for half a dozen friends that you've got coming to your house, yeah. haven't you? But on a Saturday night here, yeah. you know, in the summer we might have 180 people coming for dinner, and I think, yeah. wow, 180 people coming mm. for dinner where they were all having the same thing would yeah. be a challenge. But yeah, when they're exactly. all, everybody's ordering something different, yeah. it's and uh, do that night after night. I yeah. think I think it's I think it's amazing. But it, it but it is exciting 
interesting too, you know, that, that whole kitchen experience, that brigade experience, is, there's a lot of adrenaline going on yeah, in this kitchen. Yeah. We'll come into some of the specifics of the topics that you uh, research in a minute, but when you're doing research, I presume you end up, um, you know, on, on the website looking for people to speak to, people to interview. Um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, is anybody really interested in food and drink, but it has a natural slant to probably people in hospitality. Mm. If they want to maximise their chances, I suppose, of getting some exposure and working with journalists or, or, or newspapers, do you, you know, does it tend to be the website you hit first and do you look for a certain amount of backstory about, you know, something else? Because because there's, I'm, I'm thinking there's tens of thousands of restaurants yeah. and, and probably hundreds of thousands of chefs. Mm. How do you decide who you work with? Oh, I mean, I do use the internet a lot, um, especially if I'm looking for, so for, say for instance, I did, a, I did a piece with Telegraph last year about ghee you know, kind of clarified butter that's traditionally used in Indian cooking yep. um, because it transpired that Olivia Coleman had got a jar of it in the goodie bag that for the Oscars when she won an Oscar. Really? Hilarious. Right. Beside the five-star holidays yeah. and, nice. and cars. <clears throat> there was some ghee. So we just had a little bit of a look at, you know, why it was now trendy. Right and different chefs that are using it. So I use the internet to see who's who's using it on their menus. And then after 10 years or so of doing it, I, I now know you know, good Indian chefs to go to. Um, I, you know, I know from the grapevine who's, who may be writing a cookbook that will, that will be relevant. Um, I get a lot, I mean, I get loads of press releases. Yeah. Um, so I kind of keep an eye on those. Um, I'm not sure if you're an aspire, a restaurant aspiring for publicity that that's the best way to, way to do it. Yeah. I think Instagram probably is one of the best ways to do it that kind of keeps you in journalists field right. of field of vision good plates if you're using interesting ingredients um you know show show the world that you're doing something interesting or because to get good newspaper coverage you need to be doing something different or magazine coverage you, you really need to be not following the crowd yeah you need to be yeah, kind of you, leading the crowd a bit yeah so in I, some I, respect you don't have to be wacky and insane in everything you do but you have to show that you're a kind of a leader in the field not not a follower i guess yeah. and i guess there's juicy topics which we're going to come into so we'll talk a little bit about you know sort of vegan and we'll talk about chocolate your most uh, recent book but i guess a lot of the more press side of stuff is is reacting to stuff that's going on in the world and there's certain issues or certain quotes that come along do they tend to be you know, really tight time margins. I'm trying to think again, sort of how far you work ahead for the news kind of stuff. Um, most of the time I have kind of a good week or 10 days to do a feature, but, um, you know, recently I've been doing um, reactive features for the Telegraph, which is I find very hard. So right. to turn something, you know, a thousand words around of, and this is research stuff, this is not me kind of wittering on about my views about something. It's... Um, uh, there was a there was a report out last year talking about um, the possibility of banning snacking on public transport. Yeah, it was it that. was one of, it was a final report by the outgoing head of I think it was Pu Public Health England, right. um, and it was her parting shot essentially okay. to try to. Yeah. Um, I'm laughing because I remember all the all the sort of follow ups. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, do, yeah. yeah. And and actually that report was full of really sensible a lot of sensible <laughs> ideas, but this kind of I had to do a, a, a feature looking at why on earth she'd come to this conclusion that that we should be uh and that was actually really it was really interesting i just interviewed the chief executive of greg's um about his vegan sausage rolls and talking about food on the go is just is just where the market is at at the moment and it, he himself was saying that 
never before in human history has food been so accessible. So you stand on a corner in London and probably on every corner you'll have, a, a, I won't name the names, but we all know who they are, that we can go in and grab a cake or a sausage roll or a tub of pasta salad or what have you. We're just, it's just, in, it, we don't go a moment without being faced with a food opportunity. We can't get on the train without having something to eat or a short plane journey or what have you. So that was really interesting. Mm. Um, uh, but then other ones, you know, um, if I might be doing something about, um, you know, the trend in pizzas at the moment, I might have 10 days to go and talk, talk to pizza makers and look at that trend a bit longer so it's a good it's a good balance of both yeah I imagine it must be good I was going to ask you which you prefer but myself I could probably see the pros and cons to both of those sometimes I can see the well the the short turnarounds are really stressful but they're more lucrative for me whereas we were saying before with these really interesting juicy topics you can fall down a rabbit hole and never and never come out because I'm really curious and I'm yeah. I get really fascinated by all the angles so I you know I do 10 days of research and then have five minutes to to such, put it all together. Yeah, such as hypothetically travelling across Mexico to look at chocolate, which we are going to come to, um, but not quite yet. So I'm guessing, uh, as we said, you know, trends come along. Um, I'm going to talk to you about veganism at the moment, in, in a moment. But is there is there a particular trend at the moment that you're uh, you're researching? Uh, have you got something coming up? Um, well. I'm researching um, a book which hasn't even got to the proposal stage yet, but uh, it's, a, it's not a standard cookbook. It's a biography of a, of a woman who um, was a food writer in the 1930s, 20s and 30s, and she was very passionate about English cookery and how French cookery was getting all the limelight and the yardstick by which all food was measured, and she was furious that English cooking and ingredients and traditions weren't... Um, being respected and she felt that, that all that was going to be lost yeah. so I'm trying to um Florence was that her Florence, Florence White, White. Florence yeah, she White, sounded like a yeah. bit of a super when I was reading about her last night you know getting ready for our chat mm-hmm. I was like wow what a hero at that at that time she was a proper humans of hospitality in the earliest guys yeah, yeah no 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 she was and the more I look into her the kind of the more I realize she was a bit of a lone voice at that time um she literally traipsed around the country talking to you know, dairy maids and ladies of the manor and vicars and trying to collect recipes and techniques that possibly had never been written down before because uh, she felt that, um, you know, that food said a lot more about us as a nation and us as a society than simply the ingredients that go into cooking our tea. You know, mm. she just felt that it was really important to preserve all of that and I'm with her on that because that's one of the reasons I write about food. It's the ho- It's not just the recipe, it's... Everything. Yeah, and mm. the perception was is that certainly as, as Brits, I guess, that we had for a long time a pretty shocking reputation on food. Totally. Uh, but actually, if you go back and look at her book, there was some really interesting stuff going on for her. Maybe we don't get the credit as a country for some of the stuff that was happening. No. Because that was in the 1930s, wasn't in it? In the 1930s. Um, but I think, you know, we were talking before about the British Food Re- Revolution. That has completely changed over the past 10 20 years we yeah. are I think that's why it's perhaps timely to look at her life and her contribution to where we are now because if you look at a lot of modern British restaurant menus um, a lot of the items on that would be things that Florence White would recognize so locally sourced um, uh, you might have a, a you know a hedgerow vinegar you might have some berries foraged from the from the local forest um, you might have parts of the animal that 20 years ago we would have thought were off cuts and would have given to the dog but now 
you know, we're eating the heads and the cheeks and the tongues and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's 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 new again. It's yeah. but it but it's old. So that, yeah. that's what I find fascinating. I think it's brilliant. And, and thank you for sort of you know diving in and finding those kind of people because it's brilliant. And that's the bit that all too often gets lost in this kind of instantaneous reactive world that we live in. But yeah. I think it's so important to still take the time to dig into some issues. Yeah. So uh, the other big change we've seen in the last uh, I don't know. It feels like particularly the last you know, 12 to 18 months is this, whether it's, you know, plant-powered or veganism. And am I right in saying that you're doing a, uh, working on an article for The Telegraph around processed foods? Is yeah, that right? Yeah, I am. They haven't run it yet. Um, so basically, Veganuary, or however you can never say it properly, and a lot of the food that is um, being consumed is ultra-processed, um, ready meals, junk food, um, these fake meat burgers um, that are designed to look and taste exactly like the meat, uh, like meat or meat patties or what have you. So just having a bit of a dig into those to have a look at what we're actually eating when, yeah. we, when we buy those, and that's not great. No, so this has been a huge frustration of mine. I'm actually a big fan of, uh, I suppose, uh, yeah, either eat, uh, eat less meat, eat better, so quality is key. I think the environmental impact is, is fascinating. Uh, much as the uh, vegan movement a couple of years ago used to drive me bonkers because mm. I found their feedback uh, very angry. Very uh, militant. It, it's a yeah, very, militant, very militant. Yeah, yeah. but or actually, can yeah, it can be, yeah. But actually diving down the rabbit hole as we, uh, our sort of personality types have a tendency to do, um, you know, a lot of health benefits around eating less meat, a lot of environmental uh, impacts of the worst kind of meat we eat, i.e. the kind of incredibly intensive, industrialised stuff that's going on, which is, which is pretty uh, depressing. However, the flip side and the bit that's driven me bonkers is, is people kind of just go in, you know, plant good, meat bad. Mm. Actually, whole food plant-based diet, which is, a, which is a diet that I sort of try and follow mm. as much as possible, getting back to really good quality source ingredients, mm. so lentils and chickpeas and yeah. beans, and uh, there's some fascinating stuff. This whole, yeah, going from, you know, worst processing in many ways, you know, beef burgers yeah. only got a little bit of beef and a little bit of salt in it, but yeah. moving to this kind of stuff that's made in factories. Mm. What did you find out? What's actually in them? Because it's, it's been concerning and irritating me yeah. that we're stupid enough to go, oh, that's, I you know, I shouldn't eat that and therefore I'm going to go and get this thing that's made in a factory yeah. rather than grown in a field. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know what's in a lot of it. I mean, there are two particular types of, um, of, of, of new generation fake meats, burgers, which are kind of on the market at the yep. moment. One of them actually hasn't been approved for use approved for sale in the UK yet because it's, it's massive in the US. Yep. But it has this molecule called heme in it, H-E-M-E -E or H-A-E-M. Um, and it is basically what gives uh, meat its red colour. Yep. So if you, they've worked out a way to incorporate this into, uh, is it soy protein or whatever they're using as the basis of the of the of the meaty structure thing um, to give it that realistic juicy so it actually bleeds on mm. your on your plate. Yep. Um, it's got a, a, a list of they've all got lists of ingredients here um, an arm long. Yep. Um, one brand that I looked at had um, the main ingredient in their uh, fake shawarmas and their fake chicken burgers was something called soy structure. Yeah, that was the top ingredient, and I had to ring Unilever, which now owns that particular brand um and i never actually got a reply about what that was but really? evidently it's um soy protein mixed with wheat protein mixed with water just to make a mass that mm. they can then ultra process into something that looks like um a chicken burger or a piece of lamb or whatever it is they're trying to emulate so it's just um i think the fact that we don't recognize 
what these ingredients are. We have to call Unilever. I mean, where are we at when we have to call Unilever to find out what's in the food that we're eating? Yeah. I just don't think that that justifies whatever environmental benefits or welfare benefits you might say that's in those. I just don't think that... No. That that's justified. And, and we don't want that. Yeah, and, and, and the thing that's incredibly frustrating with it is in the same way that veganism turned a lot of people off the benefits of following a, a healthier plant-based diet, not necessarily fully vegan, but certainly, you know, even Helen Browning from the Soil Association, who is a fundamentally a pig farmer, mm. agrees we should eat less meat, eat better meat. Uh, Andrew Parry Norton from the New Forest I interviewed a few weeks ago, you know, he's a, he's a beef and a pork farmer. Even he would say, yes, we should mm. be eating mm. less meat. The, the vegan movement did a disservice in the fact that it made it quite angry and quite confrontational and activist, uh, yeah, a, a, an activist kind of uh, movement. And then, you know, you can't drive your car because it might have a leather seat and mm. what are you going to wear on your feet? And yes, there may be an argument, but for most people, they're going to start, you know, their start point isn't going to be that. They're going to start with, okay, I understand, I should mm. eat a little bit less meat. The other disservice that's now being done is, is big industry jumping on it and kind of they're now doing the same disservice by, by destroying the plant-based movement and going, actually, this is even more processed and doing even more damage to the environment. Where common sense in the middle. We do a beautiful uh, plant-based burger on our menu, you know, made with beetroot and uh, brown rice and some uh, black beans and some nice spices. You know, nothing about it is processed. And, and, you know, when we made our change 18 months or so ago, you know, we now deliberately put that next to the beef burger to go, yeah. look, here you are with a, with a plant based yeah. alternative that's yeah. lovely it's actually such an easy solution to move to a, a slightly more plant-based but yeah. i don't know it's beyond me why as a, as a society we end up jumping down this processed yeah approach. well I, I mean i just think that um a lot of people believe that it's easier to persuade people who love to eat meat it's easier to persuade them to eat plants if the plants look like meat now i have to take that i'm not one of those people that's no. persuaded about that but i i accept the fact that perhaps perhaps there are those people but as you say um the more you process something i don't think any scientist or doctor will disagree with the claim with the, the kind of the fact that the more you process the food the more nutrients you lose that yes. that's just a fact you can argue about whether the, the additives are good or bad for you or what have you. Um, when I did my book, my vegan cookbook... Yes, I was just going to ask about that. Yeah, I mean, I did... Um, I'm not vegan, never been vegan, but they wanted me to do it because... Um, Who's a they? lot of uh, well, the publisher. Okay, sorry, the yeah, yeah. Ma uh, Marabou. The us. little voices in your head. They told me to do it. No, yeah. it, it, in fact, it wasn't my idea. They approached me to do it because um, at the time, and it was five or six years ago now, uh, there were a lot of these very militant cookbooks. Yes vegan cookbooks on the market, which were full of um, seitan and soy protein dressed up and designed to look like duck or to yeah. emulate meat dishes. And I and I jumped at the chance to do the vegan cookbook, but I said, I'm not going to do any of that because ju it just doesn't sit well with me. It's There's not, no it's reason. Food, it's, it? Well, I, I just don't see, I don't see, I don't need to kind of have a piece of tofu dressed up as, as duck, you know, it's delicious. You can make it delicious. And, and I, I was so glad I did the book. It taught me so much about how to use nuts and seeds and vegetables that I might not have thought of using before, mm. but just for me, I don't, I don't need it to look like, you know, beef or, yeah. or, or, or chicken or what have you. So I, it, that debate is going to go on and on because the scientists I kind of spoke to are, there are genuine concerns about the, um, some of the ingredients, particularly emulsifiers apparently. Um, there's some looks, some going to be some 
investigations into whether they're good for us to eat them in such great quantity. Um, uh, yeah, I think we'll hear more about that. So yeah, the we vegans will. Better yeah. be. I guess as a restaurateur, I find it irritating on both fronts because I get I get irritated. It, you know, it's not even about you know meat or not meat. It's just highly processed or not highly processed. You know, the fact that the supermarket the periphery of the supermarket is where you find your dairy mm. and your uh, and your vegetables and probably your meat mm. and it might be 10 15 percent of the supermarket and the middle aisles is all where you find everything that's either wrapped in plastic or in a yeah. cardboard box yeah. that's covered in in information mm. you know and and yeah it's it's a slightly depressing yeah, reflection on humanity is. i mean well, i think we do have to be a bit careful because there's a massive debate about people who you know affordability comes into this mm. and a lot of people who um to, I mean, to start with, food is pro- a, a, t- a, a packet of pasta is processed food. A tin of tomatoes is processed food. Yep. So processing food is not necessarily bad. You're processing it when you make a bolognese, in essence, aren't you? Exactly. If you, as soon as you start to cook something or ferment something or pickle it or what have you. But I think the concern is, and I think an accepted term now is ultra-processed, where you've got this very long list of additives and enhancers and flavour enhancers and colourings and, and, and stuff that we don't really know what I it is. I think if you don't know what the ingredient is when you turn it over... It, Probably, exactly. Yeah, I think that back. I think that's what we're talking about. But then you you have this other debate about that that kind of mass produced industrial produced food is is cheap. So people who struggle to get food on the table quite rightly get slightly annoyed and yeah. more middle class people like me who write about food, um, saying, "Well, who are you to tell me that I can't buy ultra processed food because it's." the only thing I can afford. So it's it's a very tricky debate. It is, yeah. And all that then goes back into monocultures and how we subsidise farmers and how everything fundamentally is made of sucrose and kind of starches, which is because we subsidise that. Mm. So it's really cheap. So it makes terrible mm. food, which mm. is really cheap because it's subsidised. Whereas really good food, unfortunately, you can't... You know, you never see an advert on telly for broccoli because... Mm. There's no brand of broccoli, is there? Mm. So there's no money in it. So mm. nobody therefore puts any kind of advertising behind I, it. I was lucky enough to... Um, I write for Delicious magazine as well, and I interviewed um, Henry Dimbleby yesterday yeah. or the oh, day before. Oh, yeah, so he's, he's on my um, list of uh, yeah, candidates for the podcast. Oh, so okay, I've been hassling well, him. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, he's head of the government's national yeah, food strategy yeah, so yeah, he has good, a lot yeah. to say about, about all these things. Well, saved me interviewing him. What did he say? Well, <laughs> uh, well, well, I mean his brief is breathtakingly, he would say insanely wide yeah. because he's looking at everything from agricultural subsidies through to uh, the obesity problem, through to supermarkets, um, the power they have and why, why farmers are kind of not paid uh, enough, uh, through to whether food should have the carbon footprint printed on it. I mean, it's an enormous um, size of project that he's doing. Um, but I think he's probably the man for the job, if anyone is the man for the job. He has, you know, he has um, experience in the food industry and he also, you know, did the school food review um, a few years ago. So he has experience working with government and policy wonks and, you know, that type of stuff. Um, but I think that, I mean, subsidies, it could get a little bit dry, I suppose, but he says that um, if there's one thing that Brexiteers and Remainers agree on, it's how uh, withdrawing from the common agricultural policy might actually benefit us because it wasn't working before, yep. as you all the problems you were pointing out. Um, we don't need to make more food now. Yeah. Um, so he's very hopeful that with kind of the review, the guidance um, of the review, um, that money will go towards environmental measures. I mean, it has to now, the changes. So that money will go towards, you know, flood mitigation. And, um, and he's, he's quite optimistic that, you know, biodiversity can be improved, um, that we might regain 
or repair some of the damage that that's been caused. Mm. Um, he wasn't giving much away on all the others on all the other stuff, but there's no stone being left unturned. Good, I, yeah, I it is an insanely <laughs> like, and, and actually. You know, just doing these podcasts, I've interviewed Guy Singh Watson around, you know, Riverford Organics and, and the food they produce, who, who would be a great person for Henry to talk to mm. about the idea of putting a carbon footprint on food, because he mm. tried to do that for Did a while. Yeah. Uh, Helen Browning, as I mentioned, uh, actual farmers. Um, so, so it's blown my mind how complex it is just interviewing the people that I've interviewed. Mm. And I, I, you know, I thought I had a perspective on these things mm. when I started, mm. but actually the more you learn, the more complicated it gets. Mm. But there's, there's probably no doubt about the fact, you know, a, a, that it's nuanced, but uh, yeah, you know, monoculture, just learning how to turn sways and sways of countryside that, that's dedicated to one crop you know, is fairly logical to mm. go, well, that's probably not the answer because mm. it's not good for wildlife. It's not good for oversupply of, in, in essence, calories into the food system. That's mm. all we're kind of talking about yeah. is often units of calories mm. that then get used in all of these kind of cheap processed ingredients. Anyway, look, we can spend mm. we could. two we hours. We could spend a very long time on, on that one. On, on that, but um, yeah, we'd go too far down the rabbit hole. Um, right. So yeah, when you when you did that, and, and it was great because like you say you did that book on the basis, you know, a as a meat eater, and b as um, as somebody who um, who came at it with a fresh approach and not using processed stuff. Did it did it change your your kind of family's diet? Did you learn some stuff where you went, ah, oh, actually, because I, I chat to chefs sometimes and trying to persuade my chefs in the early days to sort of start to show an interest in plant-based food mm. and veggie food was really difficult. But actually, when they got into it, they went, oh my God, there's, there's actually only four or five animals that we eat, but there's hundreds and hundreds of all these different vegetables and plants, mm. and, and it's really opened their mind, and they've enjoyed kind of trying these new flavours. Did you learn some stuff that you then sort of started to use at home? Totally, totally. I mean, a lot of people would, you know, when I started to talk about cashew cream to people, they'd glaze over and almost fall over and say, no, please, please. Um, that's one example, probably my, I haven't made cashew cream probably since I wrote the book. Yeah. But without question, um, the thing, the, the, the way that you can prepare nuts, nuts and seeds and vegetables, I do think it, it takes a bit more work and imagination. I think that's probably true. Yep. Um, but what you can get out of it with a bit of creativity and a bit of effort is, is incredible. And I think we've now got to the stage where um, we no longer look at a plate of vegetables and think there's something missing, yeah. you know, which that was quite common 10 years ago, even less than that, wasn't it? That yeah. we thought that it, was, was, it wasn't a proper meal yeah. if it didn't have a meat component. Um, my children are now pescatarian yeah. through no... I'm not, but um, they've they've done that themselves. I'm quite glad that they still eat fish, uh, just because, as I say, I think it's a bit more work. I mean, vegetarians will boo me, will be booing me, but um, I think it's 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 much easier to have a bit of fish or, or meat to yeah. fill the plate. It requires me to do more thinking and more work. Um, but yeah, no, it's improved my cooking skills no end. Yeah, it yeah. reinvigorated my love for food. I, I, when I went plant-based, I said I was going to do it for a month just as a matter of curiosity to try and work out, I don't know, what, what all the fuss was about and what I could put on my menu. And then I kept it going for reasons I won't bore people with now. But what it really did is that I'm surrounded by chefs, so I, I, I you know, lovely food always available. Um, but it wasn't the style of food they cooked. And it, and it introduced me to a lot of ingredients that I'd never cooked mm. with before. And when mm. I made some uh, cashew cheese, uh, which we now serve on our, on our nachos here, uh, yeah, and there's a book called This, this Cheese is Nuts, mm -hmm. literally a whole book full of, full of cheeses made it's of nuts. extraordinary, like, isn't I it? I never knew that was possible. It, it just got me excited again, mm. realising I thought I knew food. I've been working in hospitality for 20 years. Yeah, no, I agree uh, with you. It's it, is, it is absolutely incredible. Yeah. When you, um, when you start doing recipe books, because you, you've done a number, um, how do you do that? I kind of, I think I, 
I'm always impressed with my chefs because I can ask them how to cook anything and they know. Personally, I end up going on the internet and kind of researching. Do you literally just kind of start from scratch experimenting with ingredients or is it normally an evolution of, a, of another dish? And a Definitely tweak? an evolution. Um, I might... I might spot something. I mean, we're all magpies, and yeah. anyone who, who who says they're not in food writing is is not being completely honest. Um, most food writers or cookbook developers will have, you know, their entire library of cookbooks in in front of them, not to nick ideas, but to find inspiration in in maybe flavour combinations. So I might go to a restaurant where I think, gosh, I've never seen that combination before. What can I do? What can I do with that? Can I put that into, or I've got this really good cake recipe, but um, it's a bit dull. What's seasonal? Um, so I'll look at the seasons. I'll look at what's trending on Instagram, I suppose. Particular ingredients will be popular. I think, well, that's fun. I'll see if I can incorporate those. Um, lots of time on the internet, absolutely, looking at restaurant menus around the world, um, cookbooks around the world. And sometimes the best recipes come from when you're at home trying to cook something for tea and you think you don't have anything in the house and you, and you, you, you whack some unlikely things together and they work out brilliantly and that's that's amazing when that happens yeah that's one of my favorite things i don't do it enough anymore but it might always amaze my wife who uh is a great cook but she tends to follow a recipe and i'm and i'm a chaotic cook you know i just go in and just grab i just see what's available and grab a load of stuff and start throwing it together and sometimes it's an utter disaster but when it works you're like oh my god who knew that those things went well together one of my favorite programs on uh before i came a food writer was ready steady cook yeah, um and, and we the kids and I sometimes do that, you know, yeah. let's see what we can do. And yeah. I'm, I'm happy to see that that's coming back. Is it? Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, no, uh, funny. I'm just having flashbacks because I was looking, I'm going to Camp Festival this year and uh, Timmy Mallet is also uh, going to be at Camp Festival. Do you know Timmy Mallet from, no, my childhood. Uh, people <laughs> listening will be going, and it was another one where I thought, my God, everything's coming back. Yeah. Everything's coming I back. Know. If Timmy Mallet's coming back, uh, Google him when you get when you get home tonight. And that links to my next question because the reason you don't know him is because you're from Australia. Mm. So um, was exactly. it, you know, how long did you live in Oz before you moved and, and were you interested in food when you when you were there as a kid? Ah, uh, I've I've tipped over now. I've I've been here longer than I've lived in Australia, which is I'm not even going to say the, I'm not going to say the numbers because that'll give it all away. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I when I grew up in Australia, the food revolution hadn't happened in Australia, so we had really fantastic food because it was gorgeous climate, yeah, hot and sunny, produce. amazing produce. Mm. Amazing, amazing seafood. So yeah. I ate really well, but we weren't a family of cooks. My mother, you know, there wasn't really such a thing as food writing. No. You know, the restaurant reviews were like you were talking about before. They were basically advertorials written by someone who didn't know anything about food. Um, and it really wasn't until I got here, I came here, um, I was sent here by my newspaper group to be their UK and Europe correspondent. Um, that I got excited by what was happening in the food revolution here. And, and they, they noticed you haven't gone back. So I'm just thinking they sent you I here keep, to do that. I, I and, keep, no, no, I was supposed to go back. I, no, I keep saying I hadn't met my husband yet. Uh, so I had to stay and find him. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think there was just, it was just too exciting to, to, to be here. Okay. Loads of opportunities, much bigger media industry here than in Australia and, and more opportunities. So no, I, um, I, back in the day when there were no mobile phones, I, I had a few glasses of Dutch courage and resigned from a phone box in Soho oh, and, wow. that, and that was it yeah nice. okay. and that was as a political journalist you say, so at that point I was working as a, just a London correspondent um, right. covering events in the UK and in Europe I'd left Australia as a political correspondent right. yeah. Okay. yeah and when the transition then into uh, food so I, free, I started freelancing when I kind of 
quit my staff job and worked for The Guardian for a while, probably did a shift on all the national newspapers here. Um, and then I had kids um, and got out of it for a while. And But I got into food because I was given the... Um, given the opportunity to edit a cookbook. So I was doing some copywriting and editing a a, a magazine for the Cooperative Bank of all things. Um, But the publisher knew that I was fairly obsessed with food and I had quite a good food knowledge and I also had editing and writing skills so I got the opportunity to edit a cookbook and that just opened amazing doors. Yeah, I didn't really look back. So I've managed to just specialise in in it entirely now. Great. How many cookbooks have you now written, do you know? I meant to look it up before I left. I think it's 14. Is it really? Wow, that really? Okay, yeah. Yeah. I think half a dozen jumped out uh, very easily when I typed your name in uh, last night. Um, But yeah, 14, that's good going. Well, that's been my, because I'm not a trained cook, so that's been my training and all sorts of, you know, Japanese and Spanish and salads and crackers and children's food. And so it's given me such a, I just, I just have that inquiring mind. So if I, yeah, Yeah. it's, it's. And the um, the cookbook market is is huge, I suppose. There just seems to be a phenomenal amount, mm. but there's space basically. Then is there for uh, for yeah. all of these books? I on don't the know how it's going at the moment. I mean, at one point, not that long ago, it was kind of the the sector of the book market that was still on that was still rising. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long our appetite for cookbooks can continue to, to, Look at to, my, to my be wife's like collection that. is uh, insatiable. It's yeah. it's crazy, isn't it? Because it, you know, the internet is an infinite ocean of recipes. So mm. why it's something of a mystery as to why we keep this. buying yeah. the books. They're beautiful <laughs> objects, but that I mean that's why I wanted to do something a bit different for my last cookbook was to tell a story because yeah. you you know if you want more than if you want to work out the instructions for your tea you can go onto the internet can't you but if Absolutely. you want to find something that gives you a broader look at, at or the or the story behind a food or a recipe then that's where cookbooks come in I think these days yeah you're right and I think a lot of cookbooks are changing uh, to, to tell a little bit more of a story and probably go into a little bit more depth so it's not just pages of recipes which is a, a beautiful segue so your mm. latest book is called Cocoa have Jeez. I got the right one yeah, like cacao yep, and cocoa Coco- and, uh, Coco. and yeah, yeah, yeah we had to go with the cocoa not the cacao which yeah. is yeah excellent um, so can you tell me a little bit about that because that, that ended up with quite an adventure I think didn't it yeah it was I mean as I said I wanted to do a cookbook that told a story and um, I think I realised that chocolate, which I've been a bit obsessed with all my life, was the ultimate food story because you can trace it. I mean, first of all, a lot of the planet is completely obsessed with it. it, it, It kind of has a bit of a hold on us. We all like it. We all have nostalgic memories of perhaps eating it for the first time as a kid. I just think it has a, a quite an emotional pull on us so but it's history also we can trace its history back quite quite clearly to civilizations before the Aztecs and all the twists and turns and its journey from that part of Central and South America um, to the way it is today it's just a really fascinating story and, and you know right up until today when there's a fantastic revolution going on in the in the craft chocolate movement and we're rediscovering what good chocolate tastes like rather than what chocolate confectionery laden with sugar tastes like um so it's like rediscovering chocolate again um, yeah it does feel like that i think in the same way that we've done it with uh, coffee i mean it just it's, it's definitely in my lifetime and it doesn't even feel that long ago that every coffee you ordered was a an instant in a kind of horrible polystyrene cup yep. and oh my goodness you know how far we've come mm. to the point now where we start talking about you know regions of the world and all yep. that kind of stuff and obviously the same in wine it feels like chocolate has been sort of forgotten when it shouldn't have been because it's got an equally mm. uh, fascinating sort of 
range of flavors and areas of the world that it's grown do you, do you think that we're now at the point where it's going to have its kind of uh, I was going to say heyday but I suppose it was no more once but I don't know if it's a resurgence or well, is it yeah, a new thing no, I, think it, I think it definitely is having a resurgence that, I mean it, it, as, as you say we're beginning to talk about chocolate with the terroir I hate that word because I never know how to say it but um, <laughs> like wine like olive oil um, it, where the beans are grown reflect a different flavour profile I mean yeah. there's lots of other factors involved as well you know in terms of how it's roasted and the care with which it's grown and but um, it just means that uh, without having lots of sugar uh, in these bars they can taste completely different depending on where they're grown where the beans are grown or the care with which the the chocolate manufacturers roasted them so it's 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 a really exciting um, you know world of chocolate but the problem is that um, and I'm not going to say this new craft chocolate bars are expensive because they're not. They're what, they're what we should be paying. The problem is that the, the sugary confectionery bars are too cheap. So I guess it's going to take a while for, I don't know, everybody to... Well, not everybody has the money to pay seven quid for a bar of chocolate, I suppose. Yep. Um, but that pull of those 50p bars at the supermarket checkout is going to take mm. a while for us to say no to those, I guess. Yeah. We'll come back to flavour as to why people should be uh, paying more for chocolate than they are. But uh, sort of uh, sustainability, environmentally, society. You you travelled through Mexico to literally get back to the to the oh, tree yeah, where it's grown. Yeah, yeah, what no. did you find out that made you think you know what seven quid's a good a good deal? Um, because I think that chocolate can only be grown cacao beans can only be grown twenty degrees north and south of the equator. So by definition, most of us will never actually be able to see the basic product of a, ch of a chocolate bar. And that's a problem because we, 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 what we don't know, we kind of cannot care about. We get away with not caring about, if you know what I mean. So I, th I felt that it was important to actually go and see cacao plantations for myself and, and see how, how it was made. And it was just an eye-opener to see, because in Mexico, it, of course, not everybody still makes their own chocolate by hand, but there are, there are women, and it's only women who do this process, um, who, still, who still do make chocolate by hand and who remember their mothers and their grandmothers making it by hand as a matter of course and that really is exactly the same way the Aztecs and civilizations before them would have exact would have made them exactly the same way on a, on a giant kind of pestle and, pestle and mortar on the ground um, hands and knees rolling the cacao beans roasting them over an open fire um, when you see how much work goes into um, making chocolate you, you begin to appreciate even more it's 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 beauty um, and then obviously learning about where most mass-produced confectionery comes from, which is not in Mexico, which is in West Africa, in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. Um, I mean, really we, shouldn't, really, we shouldn't be buying it, but in actual fact, that, that wouldn't solve the problem. So, in, 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 I mean, it's, it's a long and complicated history, but basically the, the cacao farmers in Cote d'Ivoire and, and, and Ghana... Um, basically barely scratch a living. They're living well under the, the kind of the, the, the standards of extreme poverty that are, that, that are recognised. Um, they've got massive problems with climate change, is, is extreme weather conditions making their lives even more difficult than they already are. Um, the younger generation of those families don't want to have anything to do with the cacao industry because there's no remuneration that they, they barely scrape a living so what, why would you want to um, and that is what feeds our 95 or I think it's 95% of 
cheap confectionery comes from the beans grown in West Africa. So we're kind of contributing to the problem. And um, big chocolate companies are beginning to realise that these problems can't go on and on because there just won't be a chocolate industry, a cheap, mm. cheap chocolate industry. Um, uh, so belatedly are pouring some money into it. But... It, 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 it's it's extremely complicated. Yeah. I wish I could have. I did. I didn't go to West Africa because book advances don't <laughs> <laughs> don't extend to just taking a year off and travelling. I would have, I would have loved to. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, I pitched. A, I, I pitched. I wanted to to go and look at because child labour is an enormous problem in West Africa, mm. and that's it's not largely because um, of, a, of, a, of a slave trade, so to speak. It's just that cacao-growing families are, are, are so poor that they can't afford to send their kids to school. They need the extra pair of hands to pick the, to pick the beans. Um, so I really wanted to go and look at this and explore it for myself and see what, uh, see what was being done. And I pitched the idea to several of the newspapers I write for, in, including The Guardian, I'm happy to say that, and no-one was interested. Um, even though I was paying for the trip myself... Um, organising it myself. All I wanted was a tiny amount of remuneration for the words I would produce for them. Mm. And I think that just says a lot about Does it s- do we care? Yeah. How much do we care about about? Yeah, is, is what it says um, some of these really big chocolate companies advertise in our newspaper? Is that what it says? Or? Uh, I don't know is whether it, I'm... Is it more complicated? I, I don't know whether I'm that cynical about it. No, I actually don't think so. I, I just don't think... No. We, we associate chocolate with joy and pleasure and Christmas and Easter and Mother's mm-hmm. Day and I don't think that a lot of people want to think about the fact that we are, you know, that is available to us thanks to child labour, that is available... To us, because you know, families in West Africa are struggling to feed themselves. Mm. That's what I think. No, I think yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a bit depressing. Sorry, everybody uh, listening. <laughs> However, what I don't understand because I, you know, I've, I've read a bit and looked into this a little bit before. And uh, Tony's chocolates, I think I was reading Tony's some of the stuff. Yeah, 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 some absolutely. of the stuff on his website, and I just find it amazing because. You know, Apple get a lot of publicity about, you know, the standards of uh, of working in China and have all of these audit systems in place. And although I'm sure it's not great, you'd like to think that there's enough of a spotlight on it now that it's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. Obviously, we've gone through similar with fair trade coffee, and I'm sure there's problems, but there seems to have been a big push. Um, chocolate sounds like it's, you know, it's a lot worse. So clothing, I'm thinking of, you know, some of the high street kind of clothing retailers who, who are investigated. I don't really understand, yeah, why if we do it in all of those sectors, why we're not doing it in chocolate when it looks like the problem is yeah is more horrendous than lots of those other sectors it is but it's i think it's also part of the it's hugely hugely complex it's 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 mind-bogglingly complex and you go to you know i've been to conferences which have spent you know spent a a very depressing day listening to world leaders in in their respective fields talk about this Mm. um and it is a bit depressing so perhaps that's what it is perhaps it's just in the too hard basket yeah well look you keep pushing uh, for that I'll try every time I I talk about my book you know I bring it it down yeah I was was, um, yeah I was skimming through the you know some some issues in the book last night and I thought it was fascinating but one of the other things that was fascinating was uh, what uh, cocoa uh, (laughs) cocoa and cacao I always Mm -hmm. get confused I'm glad Mm -hmm. you did as well I read that well it's it's, cacao is the the unprocessed product so the cacao bean so cocoa is when it's been processed and turned into powder and we had a debate whether to call it cacao or cocoa, yeah. but um, but cocoa is is the more familiar yeah, term. Yeah. But so. even though I read that, I still forget. So cacao, when it grows, what does it look like? 
Oh, they're amazing. So they grow, um, depending on the varieties, different varieties, they look like um, beautiful coloured lanterns swinging from these trees, like um, in all sorts of colours, burgundies, yellows, limes and greens. And they grow from out from the trunk of the tree as well as from the branches. So they look like some kind of alien, alien plant system. Um, and then once those pods are, are picked, you kind of they're chopped open and inside are the cacao beans. Um, they're actually seeds. It's a bit of a misnomer, to, but we all call them beans. Um, inside this um, gooey stuff, uh, white gooey stuff, which is actually delicious if you get an opportunity to eat that or have a drink made out of that in Mexico. Um, but the seeds are inside this white kind of gelatinous stuff inside the pod. So it's it's quite a magical thing to even see because yeah. these plantations have to be kind of moist and tropical atmosphere. So and and it 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 kind of is it is quite magical to walk to walk through one of these plantations to see these little little lanterns hanging from the trees. Yeah, amazing. One day I'm going to take the uh, podcast on the road and go and meet you these guys. I had the same when I met uh, Giles from Olives at Tao talking about the kind of 2,000-year-old olive plantations. Yeah. And the history is just mind-blowing. Mm. Um, but then these uh, seeds, stroke beans, they're the, ne the next stage is always a fermentation process. Yeah. Is that right? Whatever yeah. happens, that, you know. Yeah, so that's um, so the fermentation is basically, you, you could try to eat a, a bean straight out of the pod, but it would be bitter, it would be hard. Um, but that gelatinous uh, white goo um, is what helps the fermentation process. So the beans are kind of spread out. Um, they're packed in hessian sacks or banana skins and they're left and turned for, for a few days depending on the maker and they ferment just the natural yeasts in the air and then the bacterial process starts, starts going and that's how that's the, the start of that flavour journey that the beans go through. Then they're, then they're laid out in the sun uh, to dry and that's the point at which they'll be packed up into bags and shipped to wherever the chocolate maker is. And that's that's rarely in the place of origin, they say. Mm. But that's that's starting to change yeah, too. Yeah, and that's the next stage. So to really try and ensure that the grower gets more of a percentage of the cash, the closer we can move the production of the chocolate to the grower seems to be helping. So that seems to be, again, use the word resurgence, I suppose, mm. but that's happening more. Did you see that in Mexico? Are they actually starting to make the bars themselves? Yep, absolutely. The thing about Mexico, Mexico doesn't have a, a long tradition of eating chocolate. Its tradition is drinking chocolate. Right. So it has a very specific gritty style of chocolate that, that everybody in Mexico is familiar with that they grind up and put into hot chocolate drinks or grate into their, into their so it's not smooth and luscious that we, that we know chocolate, although they're starting to do that. They kind of feel as though they've missed the boat slightly being the crucible of chocolate and they haven't really led the way in eating chocolate, but they're starting to change that. Um, and these tree-to-bar uh, producers, which is what we call them, so um, where the chocolate is actually made, where the beans are grown, which traditionally hasn't been done because it's too hot. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and these are communities, these are developing communities that haven't had the technology, and technology is required to make a decent bar of chocolate that's palatable for most of us. Um, so traditionally, no, those growing communities have never benefited from those from the value-added processes mm. that make it into chocolate. But that is starting to change and there's lots of initiatives to get the growers to produce their own bars. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, I've been, been reading about that. It sounds uh, mm. exciting. So um, you talk about this kind of artisan chocolate of being uh, a flavour bomb and, and completely different, I guess, to what we probably think of. Mm. Uh, can you explain a little bit about that? Because you, you tend to then lead on to using it in some really interesting ways and yeah. some recipes. Yeah, so if you look at... Um, if you look at 
the, the thing is that we're, most of us, if we eat chocolate that has a lot of sugar in it and a lot of oils, vegetable oils or palm oils, we're not actually really tasting cacao, the, the chocolate. Um, it's, all, it's, it's mostly sugar. But if you try bars that, that have been made in a way that preserves the, the flavour profile of those beans, um, you can you can taste something quite ex extraordinary because in themselves, um, cacao beans are hugely complex. They've got thousands or hundreds of chemicals in them or aroma compounds as, as they're called. And their aroma compounds is what enables our brain to detect a flavor. And those aroma compounds will, will vary according to where the beans are grown, um, uh, the environment they're grown in, what the what the roaster does to them, how the fermentation process is carried out, um, all the genetic, the genetic, importantly, the genetic strain of the beans also has. So you've got this amazingly complex flavour profile, which, depending on where they're grown, can can run from, you know, blackberry notes and berry notes right through to dried fruit, through to um, spicy chili, cinnamon notes. Um, you know, and back again up to citrus citrus flavours. And none of us really appreciate that that's what's locked in cacao beans because we're just used to eating sugar. So this new generation of chocolate makers is trying to distill or harness all those, or some of those flavours um, so that we can appreciate them. And mm. um, that's why I got excited about putting them in recipes because you can harness those some of those flavour profiles to pair them with ingredients that might not seem logical to a lot of people or might seem a bit weird, um, but you can enhance the flavour of both the ingredients to make an incredible kind of flavour bomb, I suppose. And one of an example of that is um, a pasta dish, which is really actually really popular um, with that uses gorgonzola walnuts rosemary with a grating of dark chocolate over the top and a lot of people kind of initially say that's just that sounds it's not on weird yeah, yeah weird but you know we're not we're not grating a dairy milk over the top of this this is this is it's because cacao beans can have dairy notes in yeah. them cheese obviously the gorgonzola has dairy notes so they're both magnifying each other some chocolate also has notes of blue cheese Gorgonzola is a blue cheese, so you're enhancing those notes. But you're also providing contrast as, uh, as well. Some bitter notes of the chocolate, of the dark chocolate, with the creamy notes of the gorgonzola. That contrast makes the dish more complex and more interesting. So there's lots of fun to be had in pairing chocolate with unexpected ingredients. Mm. And whereas I uh, thought it was bonkers until I told my head chef, Quentin, who mm. you know, that I, that I was interviewing you today, and uh, he straight away, he said, oh my God, she made this amazing duck and chocolate dessert for an event he was at, is that right? And well, it was duck duck fat in, right. in the chocolate, in the chocolate ganache, in the chocolate caramel, sorry, in the caramel that went into the chocolate tart, yeah. And that's because, again, in that pr flavor profile of cacao, are savory notes. So the savoury notes in the chocolate pa actually pair really well with that umami flavour of the, of the duck fat. It, it just does really work. Yeah, no, you, yeah. no, 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 I'm, I'm not. I'm, my eyes must be looking sceptical. <laughs> I believe you. I'm, what I'm, I said to you I was actually going to do is I'm going to uh, lend Quentin the book and get him to, uh, to cook some. it and maybe yeah. cook some other stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, no, sounds, sounds uh, fantastic. And uh, I'm sure some people will go off and, uh, and buy and the book it. and experiment <laughs> off, the, uh, off the back of it with a bit of luck. Um, as you've sort of got this increasingly 
deep level of kind of understanding and knowledge, I guess, if you've, as you've researched all these books and you've been off on these food adventures and you've now been doing food for, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to say long time, that would sound rude. but Probably uh, you know, is now. Yeah, yeah. yeah a, a decent amount of time. Um, you also get asked to um, to kind of judge food a little bit more. And we were chatting earlier about, sort of, you know, going on... Um, TV. So, what? Yeah. What? What are some of the things that it's led to? What sort of ju- food judging have you been involved in? And does that make a lot of difference? Do you think to the kind of producers of these foods? Um, I, for many years, I judged in the Great Taste Awards, which was a fantastic honour because you, your eyes are open to the, just the extraordinary range of skills of and expertise of food producers in this country and and the and the natural ingredients. So that that's an absolute honour to to kind of judge in that. Um, I've also um, well, in fact, yesterday I got my invite through to the Academy of Chocolate Awards, which I know I can hear the audience with their violins out <laughs> saying, poor yeah, God, me. What a horrible um, day that sounds like. It's yeah. actually, it's actually, a, it's quite hardcore on your gut. I've, I've yeah. got Because well, you have accreditations say. in these things, don't you? This I, isn't just I have uh, chocolate qualifications. Yeah. Like, I'm so excited. And cheese, did I read? Mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah, How on earth do you cheese. get an accreditation in cheese and chocolate? And uh, people well, are going to be booing. There's, there's the international, um, I'm going to get the, the, the name of the school wrong, the International Academy of chocolate and cacao tasting i have level one and level two (laughs) certifications in that um and academy of cheese i mean i can't recommend that course um highly enough it's just we've got such a a fantastic uh well i guess it is a revolution in in cheese in in this country just Mm. world-class um producers going back again to what florence white was talking about regional specialties um, which deliver fantastic cheese depending on where the cows graze and all on all that kind of stuff so um, I don't normally judge in the Academy of Cheese Awards but I might I might do that this year because it's 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 a, it's an area that I find really really interesting cheese making is fantastic yeah. so yeah so that and uh, and that and I might go back to the great taste awards this year yeah. too just I've, had to... a, I've had a couple of cheese producers uh blue vinny so Emily from blue vinny mm-hmm. uh and and fascinating really just yeah the, the variety that we've got every sort of 20 or 30 miles you know and again chatting to the the commoner in the new forest about the traditional sort of heritage breeds of animals that we used to have before mm. we got done are dominated by the, uh, you know, the ones that were, were bought in for speed of growth rather yeah. than flavour. Yeah. But it's because of all those different varieties of or breeds of cows mm. that all produce a different variety of milk that mm-hmm. led to all these different cheeses that we used to have. Uh, yeah, every time you moved counties. Uh, and it does seem, again, that we're getting a, I don't want to use that word resurgence again, but we're getting this you know, kind of interest. The New Forest Mark is, you know, having an impact on this, this local project. Yeah. So, yeah, a, a great time to be involved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A great time to have an accreditation in cheese, I would it, imagine. Well, it is. I need to get my so level two uh, so I can officially do. eat more cheese. You do. Does that involve sort of blind tasting and stuff? Do you have to be able to name the, uh, I don't know, the field? Probably. Or, uh, <laughs> Probably. Yeah, whether it's a south-facing cheese or a north-facing. Uh, look, some people, especially in chocolate and also cheese, have those incredible palates. I, d- I don't, to be honest, yeah. but I, I, I think I know what I like. That's, that's about. The only time I recognise, we do a lot of wine tastings, another another terribly mm, hardship yeah. of, uh, of being a restaurateur. And uh, and I'm great if uh, if we've got, and, and the, what I love about it is you might have, you know, 20 different bottles open at the same time. And then it's really easy to go through all of the different varieties and the hot countries and the cool countries and really open my eyes into sort of, you know, the flavours of, of white wines rather than red wines. 
but I'm a nightmare. Once I'm like, you know, yeah, six months later, mm. and uh, and you're mm. only trying one, and they go right, you know, this is this grape. You know, can you can you can you tell me about it? And mm. I'm like, my God, I cannot. I know, no, it's know. extraordinary. I just think isn't it? it's bloody lovely. Normally, that's, yeah, that's generally exactly, yeah, yeah. Gem- generally what I think. Um, so now you you do so much. Uh, which is your which is your favourite bit? Which is the bit that gets you buzzing? If you wake up in the morning, which is the bit of uh, that gives you the most reward? Probably, I, I, well, I'm really, really enjoying researching my book at the moment. Um, and, you know, whether that even leads to any, it leads Which to book a book. Is that, book. So I'm researching this book about Florence White, ah, yes, who course. is this, yeah. pi- you know, pioneering. And, and I love her story also because she's a woman. And a lot of the female voices from that era have never been heard. It mm. was it's people, women who worked, and they mostly worked in the domestic sphere, so domestic kitchens or the kitchens of big country houses or what have you. It wasn't regarded as skilled, technical, valued work. It's, mm. it's, it was women's work. And, yeah. you know, and um, so I think it's important to tell women's stories. So that's got me excited at the moment, even though I don't actually have a publisher for that book yet i've got to move faster and get the proposal <laughs> sounds like a great idea though the, the you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near of expertise but i think yeah. it's yeah it sounds like it's a story that should be told and mm. now feels like the right yeah. time to tell no it, absolutely so. and i'd and i'd i'd loved the the, the 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 general food feature writing that i do because it always gets me out talking to chefs or producers or or makers so i'm always learning something and they're always very inspirational people i find people in the food world really lovely people yeah. in the main they're passionate because not necessarily they're not necessarily in in jobs that are earning them lots of money so they're motivated and driven by what they do and a passion and interest for what they do and i and i really like that so yeah. every day is pretty good mm. in the food writing world it's true. it say. comes up so much and, it, and it's why this podcast is called the humans of hospitality rather than the brands of for a few reasons but one because Human beings in it, in hospitality, are, are generally lovely. I think you're right. I think because very few of them are in it in a, in a ruthless way to make millions of quid. They're in it because they're just super excited and passionate about their niche, whether it be chocolate or sea salt or farming or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, but also so, op- so therefore so open to share their stories and mm. share their passion and kind of, yeah, it feels like we all help each other out a lot. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if, if, if you know, and that's where Twitter and social media, definitely I couldn't do my job without it. Mm. There's such a generosity of knowledge that if you, if you need to know, um, you know, it's the most obscurest things, somebody out there will, will know it um, and, that, and they'd be happy to share their knowledge about it. So, yeah, no, it's, 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 yeah. it's an exciting sector. As a matter of interest, have you, have you cooked any of Florence's uh, recipes yet yeah. from her book? Yeah. yeah. Are they yeah. good? Yeah, well, it's complicated because some of them don't actually have, um, you know, weights and measures that we're familiar with. Right. Um, they, d- they use different types of yeast, for example, but I have actually made her dorsa apple cake, um, right. which is not a cake in the sense... It's like a big scone. Okay. Scone, scone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely delicious. Uh, yeah, I've, I, I'm actually trying more of it. My kids are trying to steer me away from experimenting on them because some of them are quite old-fashioned. They really? didn't use as many ingredients. Yeah. They're very simple, relied on the quality of the ingredients yeah, rather than the, the, kind of the complexity of the recipe. Mm. And we have to adjust our palates well, I like that because you know any any good chef will say that the uh, you know the, the quality of the ingredients and the provenance of those ingredients and then their fundamental job is not to mess them up mm. if you buy beautiful ingredients mm. there's so little that you actually need to do really, well, that's, isn't it? and that's that's why that's I kind of chef celebrates. when eating eating food on holidays in sunny italy or what have you the food always tastes 
spectacular, even if it's not complicated, doesn't it? Because oh, God, it's, it's the very best. Yeah, mm. go somewhere. I was, I was interviewing uh, Jodie uh, Schechter from Laverstoke Park uh, a couple of weeks ago, who makes the most amazing mozzarella. Mm. And you go down to Italy and, and have a glass of, you know, cool white wine in the sunshine and just just tuck into some beautiful tomatoes that don't you know i don't know i don't know if they just don't taste as good here because of how we grow them or just because they taste better in the mediterranean basically i can tell you partly why they don't taste as good go here. On. because they're bred i spoke to a scientist about this recently this certainly supermarket ones yeah. they're specifically bred not to ripen right so that they, so last, they last on the shelf and they yeah. can be transported so they will never actually Taste any good. Taste any good. Yeah, mm. scary, isn't it? I know mm. we, we looked into the uh, the issue around, yeah, you're better off kind of uh, heating greenhouses and saying you use local tomatoes or actually just kind of bringing them up on a truck from the Mediterranean. Mm. And uh, I guess it's always debatable, but the general consensus seemed to be, you know what, sometimes it's better to bring them up in a truck from the med than mm. it is to heat your greenhouse and grow them mm. uh, in the new forest. So um, drawing to a close... Uh, the lots of people then interested in food, interested in drink. Everybody's now a blogger and influence all this kind of stuff. If you were speaking to your younger self or other people who are kind of looking at getting involved more in the in the writing about food and the journalism around food rather than you know cooking it and serving it, uh, I don't know. Is that boat sailed? Is it too late? Or what advice would you give them if you want to try and make a living in the world of food writing? Okay, th- I mean. Uh, it's very hard to make a living in food writing. I'll be completely honest. It, mm. it really is. Uh, everybody wants to do it because it's. it really is one of the best jobs that you can do. So um, there's more people than is needed, so the remuneration isn't, isn't high, is, isn't great. But it is such a fantastic job, so I wouldn't put anybody off doing it. Mm. I think it's not... I think if you approach it from um, a point of knowledge, maybe... Maybe develop a specialty where you know a lot about something. I think if you go out there and just try and throw your camera around and and, and blog without some knowledge about it, uh, that's probably not the way to go. Become a specialist. Immerse yourself in it. Be curious about the particular area that you want to that you want to you know write about, um, and it'll be much easier to get to get the work, I think, because you'll be an expert. I think just being a generalist these days, it's the same with cookbooks. I think we have enough generalist cookbooks. If you specialise in a particular area, I think that's probably the way to go. Mm. No, I think, no, no, it's, I think it's really good advice. I think with, with most things in life, really. Uh, yeah, you know, specialise, get to know something really, really well. And this is an industry where you are going to do it for the love. You know, I would. my daughter's 10. She's, she loves baking, obsessed by baking, baking all the time. Terrible mm. for my waistline, mm. but great great to go home and there's always freshly baked cakes. <laughs> and much as there's a big bit of me that would want to talk her out of her career in hospitality for all of its antisocial hours mm. and pay and challenges, mm. there's a big bit of me that goes, you know what, you meet lovely people, um, you have some great adventures and journeys that go on around you. And yeah, and if you really, if you really know your subject and you do it because you... You love it. Not, not, don't start with money as the key motivation. I think ultimately you can probably do all right. But if you start with money as the motivator, I think probably not going to happen. It, it, no, no, you'll be sadly disappointed. But, yeah. but in terms of you know wanting to get out of bed and 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 go to work, mm. my kitchen table um, every day. Yeah, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. But, but, but it is a lot of work, and 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 it doesn't happen quickly. You have to. You just have to write. So. Blogging, you have to blog. You have to have um, some kind of forum before you have someone that, before you have any experience, you've got to write. So yeah. put it on a blog, 
yeah, key thing. Doing newsletter or whatever, yeah, get, just get some experience. Get, get people, your art out there. Get your art out there and put it on social media because it's it's a, it's an amazing opportunity to get work. Social yeah. media, media. And, and most people will give up before you. That's the other thing I think, isn't it? Is that uh, you know people people stop. A bit like doing a podcast, really. Mm. Lots there's there's thousands of those, but uh, yeah, most most people stop before you get that momentum. Absolutely, you get I have a, a novelist friend who once said the only difference between me and people who 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 aren't novelists is, is I actually sat there and I did it. Yeah, tried you harder, know? did yeah. it for longer. Yeah. That's the key. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Look. Uh, so it's great to finally um, sit down and have a proper yeah, conversation with it. you and, uh, and and learn your history. And um, keep doing what you're doing. I, I I think in this kind of yeah reactive, um, slightly shallow. You know, every, we're always onto a news story world. I think it's so important to actually get some depth and dive deeper into issues. Yeah. I hope you get to Africa and look into that Thank chocolate. Thank you. I hope and, I do And I too. might come with you. <laughs> okay. Um, let's although do it. I, I, yeah, I want to interview the. Uh, yeah, the people that are doing all right out of it. But raising awareness, I think, is, is also key, I guess, isn't it? So, uh, but yeah, good luck. Continue your adventure. Thank uh, you. Where should people go? Best social channel to follow you or website? I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at Pen and Spoon, as it sounds, Pen and Spoon. Excellent, perfect. I will put some links as well from uh, the uh, podcast website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, um, so you can go there as well, and uh, and I will link up to it. But uh, thank you, Sue. Sorry, I'm going to release you back into the very wet, dark February rainy seafronts. But uh, thank you, Mark. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday